Hi, everyone. <laughs> Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can follow along or on the screens on the side. I'll be reading from verse 1 to 14. This is John, chapter 21, starting with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. To invite you to pray with me. Father, we ask that you would Give us understanding this morning to comprehend uh, the teachings in your word and to understand what it means to come and have breakfast with Jesus. So we, we ask that you'd open our eyes, that you would melt our stubborn wills and help our feeble hands um, to grasp at, at what this means. Amen. So Easter's over. All the excitement of Easter is now gone. The Easter lilies, the Easter flowers that were blooming and blossoming, I think are dead now. Um, at least the ones that weren't continually watered. And so it's kind of, you know, it's, that's over. Um, I guess it's just back to ordinary Sundays now until next year when we get to celebrate Easter again, you know? All the pomp and excitement. Um, just another Sunday service to go to, huh? Is the risen Lord still among us? Is Jesus still at work when it looks like nothing exciting is happening, that nothing exciting is going on around us? Um, this morning, you know, I think it, it, it really highlights that we're caught in the in-between. Have you heard that expression before, caught in the in-between? Maybe if that's the first time you've heard it, um, I'll explain. 
So we're living in this awkward moment in time between uh, the already and the not yet. Jesus has come, but he hasn't come back yet. So we're in this in-between. And so we're waiting in the same way that a lot of people had to wait throughout the entire Bible. Um, For generations upon generations of people had to wait for a baby to come in a manger. Um, The prodigal son's daddy had to wait until the prodigal son returned home. The disciples in, in John 21, they're sitting and they're waiting by the sea of Tiberias and Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus to meet them again, like he said and promised that he would. They're waiting. Now, some of us, we're waiting for something. What are we waiting for? Uh, some of us might be waiting for a baby. Some might be waiting for a home. Some might be waiting for a child, a son, or a daughter to come back home. Maybe they're off at college right now. Maybe they're traveling. Some of us are waiting to graduate. Some of us are waiting to go on vacation. Some of us are waiting for a break. Some of us are waiting for a cup of coffee. (laughs) Could really use one of those right now. But we're waiting, and, and, and all Christians are waiting. Ultimately, we're waiting for the same thing. We're waiting for Jesus to return, to come back. We're waiting for Easter to finally and fully, decisively matter, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting everywhere, that that would happen. And that sounds super cool and crazy awesome, right? Sounds sweet. All these things are going to happen. But in the meantime, what are we stuck with? We're stuck waiting. (laughs) Waiting. And our, our waiting signals to us, it reminds us constantly that not everything's right in the world. The, the world we lived in is royally messed up. We pay attention to any, like, headlines. Listen to the news for two seconds. The world is just not right. There's something massively wrong with it. Stuff's broken. Stuff doesn't work right. And so what do we do with our lives? Um, you know, the, the other day, uh, G and I, uh, we were driving, and, and we're, we're, we're just, we're, you know, we actually we had a lot of errands to do. We were driving, and we were, we were stuck in this moment. Um, um, where we felt like life had absolutely no meaning. Have you ever been there before? You're driving, and you're like, where am I driving? What am I doing? What's going on? Has, has, have you ever been there before? Um, of course, there are tons of things to do. You know, kids are screaming at home. Thanks, Nana, for watching them. Um, <laughs> we have tons of things going on. And yet, we're, you know, there's this moment where you're caught in this in-between of what the heck is going on? Where's, where's the purpose? We know there's purpose. Where's the purpose? Just the, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a fleeting moment and a feeling. Have you been there before? This morning, I want to talk about the disciples who were there (laughs) in that moment, essentially, caught in this kind of in-between, caught in between physically seeing and, and hearing and touching and believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. They saw the holes. They saw the pierced side. And now they're stuck waiting for weeks or months on end, 
for Jesus to tell him, to, what's happening next, Lord? Because that, it was kind of like this dead silence in terms of like, okay, this triumphal thing just happened. Something that's never happened ever before, essentially. And now what? Stuck waiting, like we're stuck waiting. So, so two, two things to consider this morning. Uh, the first thing is back to the beginning. And the second thing is breakfast with Jesus. So our first point, back to the beginning. Um, what happens after Easter? What happens next? After doubting, now believing Thomas is there and these other disciples and such. So verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And two, other, two others of his disciples were together. And so Jesus makes his next resurrection appearance to seven of the original disciples. This time it's in Galilee, uh, by the Sea of Tiberias. Um, we're exactly where he told them that he was going to meet them. Um, Luke 24 says he told them to stay in the city until, and so they were waiting. Galilee, BT-dub, uh, that's by the way. Hey, I'm still hip, no? All right, no, it's super cheesy. Um, but Galilee's an interesting choice. Uh, at the beginning of, of John's gospel, it's back in, in Cana and Galilee, where, where Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. Remember that? Turned water into wine. And so this location is significant. But here's what's weird about it. Um, there's some, this is some length of time after the other appearances. And so Peter and the others have been waiting around. Just waiting, you know, checking his watch, checking the clock, tapping his foot, just waiting. So what do we do now? Um, I mean, if you'd seen the risen Jesus, you'd experience what they experienced, the greatest Easter high ever. And then Jesus told you to wait in Encinitas by the Pacific Ocean and just hang out there with your buds. You know, go, go wait. And so, so you're there, you're in Encinitas, you're by the Pacific Ocean, and you're just hanging there, and you're waiting for Jesus. What would you do? How would you be feeling in that moment? Is Jesus even coming back? Why is he taking so long? Man, I've been in Encinitas forever. Which isn't a bad thing in Encinitas. This is Galilee. He appeared in a room to us. He showed him, you know, who he is. Can you just show up for two minutes and give us an update on what's going on? Um, so we don't know what Peter was feeling. The text doesn't say, so I don't want to venture there because I don't know. But there are a number of human responses that we can expect that he probably had. So one possibility, maybe he started to doubt. Did I hallucinate? No, the others saw him too. We really saw him. He spoke to us. But maybe he faced some doubts about the significance now, you know, and his own, his own significance. You know, I denied Jesus three times. I said I'd, ne- I'd never deny Jesus once, and I denied him thrice. Maybe he felt like a failure. Or maybe he trusted Jesus' word, but he didn't want to sit around and do nothing, so he went fishing. Um, 
I feel like that may have been my wife's response. She would have, you know, gotten busy while waiting. It's like, all right, got to get some stuff done. Let's do laundry. Let's do this. Like, come on. I would have been reading a book, but especially in Encinitas, sit out on the beach waiting. So maybe he got restless and he figured he needed to get busy. Or maybe, Peter, maybe he needed to provide for his family. You know, he's been wasting time wandering around Galilee, so he thinks, I might as well go back to work. Um, Since Jesus has left us, I'm a disciple, and I don't know where I'm going or who to follow anymore right now. I'm waiting instruction. So he's left. He's given us no direction. So I'll do what I know I can do. I can fish. So I'm going to go fish. Who's coming with me? And, And so I think the third of these responses is most likely, but we don't know for sure. But I think it's the most likely. But for one of these reasons, verse 3, Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. They say to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Oh wait, it wouldn't be weird for Peter or the sons of Zebedee to go out fishing. That was their vocation before they met Jesus and when they met Jesus. What's weird is that the other four disciples were not fishermen. So that's kind of odd. This group wasn't made up of fishers, yet they say, we'll go with you. Peter's the leader. They had many common experiences together with Jesus doing ministry together as the official you know, band of brothers. And so it seems that they're still following Peter's lead, and they go fishing. So off they go. Their fishing hooks, uh, their nets, they, they, they go and they do the thing that Peter knew how to do. Except he doesn't. He doesn't know how to do it. They don't catch any fish. They're out on the sea all night. They have all the right tools. They have all the right experience. They have a pretty good crew. At least, you know, some out of the seven know what they're doing. And that night they caught nothing. Nothing. Peter was a fisherman. That's the one thing he could do. He didn't need the risen Jesus to go out and catch a fish. He knew how to catch a fish. I got this. He's a professional. What happens? No fish. John is, is literally, he's stamping on our eyeballs the fact that apart from Jesus, you can catch not a dang fish. <laughs> Can't catch a fish. You can do nothing. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He says to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And so without Jesus, they have no fish. With Jesus, they have an abundance of fish. Tons of fish. Can I just say that it's so easy to think that we have the right equipment, that we have the know-how, to get things done. It's so easy, and I'll speak for myself here, it's so easy to think, you know, oh, well, I've, I've gone to seminary, and I've gotten all the right training, and I've studied under the right people, and I've spent time with so-and-so, and I've learned all this stuff, and I've spent so much time, I have the tools, I have the books, this whole ministry thing right. I know so much about evangelism and, and, and ministry. You know, I've spent the last 11 years of my life devoted to these things. And so I have the know-how. I have the experience. 
I know what I'm doing. And you know what words God's inscribing upon our hearts this morning? And our minds, as we feel these things? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's so easy to think we can do spiritual work without God. And what's funny to me about being a pastor um, is that I'm asked, what I'm asked to do and what I'm tasked with, what I'm responsible for, is all the things that I cannot do. doesn't depend on me. So I'm called to pray for people. Um, I can't answer my prayers, only God can. And then I'm called to preach people and teach. And these aren't my teachings, and in order for people to believe these teachings... Well, I can't actually convince them. That's only something that the work of God can do. And again, I'm I'm called to listen to people. But again, that's dependent upon God talking and other people talking to me, not me talking. So again, like all the things that I'm supposed to do are things that actually God does. So God gets the glory. The pinnacle of the work I'm called to do is stuff I can't do. Earlier I said the location in Galilee, that it was significant. Why? Why is it important? Um, Well, Jesus first called some of these disciples on the shore of Galilee, near Capernaum, in Mark. Galilee was a region with a heavy traffic of Gentiles that's non-Jewish people, and so it's a strategic location. And, And when Jesus called them, he said, come, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, in Mark 117. Make you fishers of men. Peter, James, and John, and the rest, they were, they were called by Jesus no longer to be fishers of fish, but to be catchers of men, of people. And that tells us something of the mission of the church, doesn't it? One of the most important tasks of the church is to fish for people, to evangelize the nations. And this task, well, don't you see what John is trying to tell us here? That apart from Jesus, we can't catch any people. You're not going to win any arguments, as if that were the point. It's not. You're not going to convince anyone. You're not going to bring anybody into the kingdom of God by your own doing. This is God's doing. It's God's work. God is ultimately the one who will change hearts when arguments. God's the one who make the blind see and who alone can raise the dead. But it is our mission. It is what we're called to, to fish. Knowing that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Knowing that it's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts, not us. Knowing that we preach and we witness to others because God is at work through such means. And so God calls us to be fishers of people. So who are you talking to? Who are you inviting into your life and and to share in the life, the hope that you have within you? Who are you inviting here to church? Who are you inviting into your community groups? Who are you inviting into fellowship in your own home to share a meal and talk? Not just about the things, um, you know, what's, where, where do I shop? Uh, what are the places that I should go to in San Diego? It's a great place to live. 
but, you know, getting into the deeper things, asking those questions, diving deep with people. God's calling us back to the beginning. He's always doing that. He almost rewinds with these disciples and the others here to remind them of what's most important. The fundamentals. It's always back to the beginning. The gospel starts where it ends. Jesus calls his disciples in chapter 1. Now in chapter 21, he's calling them again from their occupations to be disciples again. Back to the beginning. His work of redemption itself calls us back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Back to the beginning. The beginning of John's gospel echoes the beginning. Back to the beginning. And his work in our lives of, of what he's up to, of what he's actually busy doing, is back to the beginning. When he first calls somebody as a Christian, it's a call that goes back to the beginning. Apart from me, Christian, you can do nothing. I mean, you might think you don't need the gospel anymore, but you do. You always need the work that I've done. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. Whether you believe yet or not, that message remains the same for people who presently believe and people who do not yet believe. Back to the beginning. So do you still see your, your need for Jesus? No matter how humdrum and dull life can get, do you still see him working in your life? Do you still see him working in our sometimes, how we feel, our, our, our totally mundane existence? Monotonous at times, changing diapers, going back to the same old thing, clocking in, clocking out. Do you see God at work in the stillest moments of your life? That's the first thing I wanted us to consider back to the beginning. The second is breakfast with Jesus. Breakfast with Jesus. And so, you know, the last time that this scene happened... The last time this fishing scene happened, it was so different. According to Luke's gospel in chapter 5, when Peter experienced a great catch of fish because of Jesus, what did he do? What was different? Luke 5, 8 tells us, When Simon Peter saw it, meaning this glorious catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so at that time, Peter knew absolutely nothing of the grace of God. He knew nothing of the character of Jesus, of who Jesus is, of what he could do and what he will do. And look how differently Peter responds to this catch of fish. Verse 7 of our text, John 21, he says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And that's not running from Jesus anymore. That is, that, that is running to Jesus. Complete change, complete difference in how 
Peter perceives the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. Completely different. So these guys were fishing all night. Peter was either naked or almost naked, is what, when we're reading this, that's what we think of, right? Hopefully not too much. Um, when John tells them this, though, um, that, you know, this isn't just a helpful fisherman on the shore who's telling us what we should try, uh, a better, better tip on how to fish, but it's the risen Lord. And so, so Peter puts more clothes on and then jumps in the water. Hey, does anybody usually throw more clothes on before you jump into a pool? Or like you're going to go in, you know, Encinitas? And, no, you don't do that, right? Neither did Peter. Um, our translation says he put on his outer garment, uh, but he just ties the garment around him um, so he wouldn't be exposed and jumps in the water. It would be like tucking your shirt in before you jump in. Um, you, they had a lot of cloth on and such, so, um, so it wouldn't, he wouldn't drown. So he swims to shore, so he goes, you know. This is so characteristic of who Peter is in the Gospels. I mean, this is classic Peter. He's rash, he's always so quick. Uh, uh, Lord, um, uh, you're not going to wash my feet, I'll wash yours. Remember that moment? Or um, he's quick to act tough. I'll never deny you, Jesus. Oh, I'm never going to do it. And he does. Three times, even before a little girl. Remember that? Quick to jump in the water, to get his feet wet. Rushing after Jesus. That's Peter. And so what happens when they get there? Verse 9, they, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. All night, no fish. And the risen Lord has a feast readily prepared for them. Fire's been burning, the fish is cooking, there's bread ready to eat. And so why does Jesus ask them to bring more fish? And you're like, you're reading this, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. He's already got the fish, he's got the bread, he's got the stuff, it's ready, meal's prepared. Why does he ask them to do that? Only explanation for this is that none of, the, none of it's really about fish. It's about what God is up to right now. Christ is risen, and he's inviting his disciples um, into the work that he's doing in this world. And as he promised earlier, he would make them fishers of men. And so it's a confirmation of that promise. Look with me at verse 11. You see the details of large fish, all 153 of them. And there's, there's so many that you, you'd expect for this net to just break. A, that's a ton of fish for their net. And it doesn't snap. Not a single one of the fish are lost. Not one. Is that not a picture of the fact that not one of Christ's fish will ever be lost? Like the parable of the lost son, like the lost coin. That this net won't rip. He will not lose any one of them. Any one of his sheep, to use a different metaphor. It's a net that won't budge, it won't break, it won't snap. So, so if you're in the Lord Jesus' care... No one and nothing can take you away from him or him from you. That's why he's saying to these disciples and to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never lose you. You might be lost. You might feel like you're driving nowhere, that you're lost in the world aimlessly, purposeless. 
but you see in me, you're found. Jesus says to them, this is verse 12, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is probably the quietest breakfast that you can ever imagine. They're having breakfast and all of them are like, we're not going to ask anything. We're just going to eat our fish and our bread. (laughs) And so they just, they're there. They're with the risen Lord. And the risen Lord is with them and they're eating this meal together. I mean, sometimes I I think of it like... um, like shoulder to shoulder time with my wife. Like I like sometimes it's like we're so tired. <laughs> we're just like, but we're like just just sitting next to each other in the same room and not necessarily talking, just being in the same room bodily with each other is is enough. It's sufficient, right? And never feel like that before. I kind of feel like that's this moment here when they're having breakfast together. Anyway, so are, are you weary? Are you exhausted? Are you tired? Have you been working long hours? Have you been up multiple times through the night with a crying infant or something? Are you tired? Jesus says, come to me and have breakfast. Just come and eat with me. Come, taste and see that I am good. Come and buy milk and wine without price. Come to me and I'll feed you until you never hunger again. Come and I'll give you a drink that will satisfy your thirsty mouth and fill your hungry stomach. Come, all who are weary, worn out, tired, and I'll give you rest. That's what he offers. And look, there's no rebuke for these disciples like we'd expect. There's no slap on the wrist. Oh, you've been bad, Peter. You've been bad, boy. You're going back to your fishing. Like, no frustration with them. No pointing out of all of Peter's failures, his insecurities, his worthlessness. It's no rebuke for you this morning either. Jesus just tells them to come and have breakfast with him. It's a man who's who's proved to be true God by being raised from the dead. Death could not hold him down. And now he's saying, come and eat a normal meal with me, with real food, with real fish and real bread that really feeds you, that you can taste in your mouth. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that a Jesus that you want to come and know? Remember Peter, the first time he encountered Jesus. It was like Isaiah when he said, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he said to to the thrice holy God, a God who is holy, 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 Isaiah says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. I mean, that's, that's what Peter said. It's what we'd expect when we're confronted with God. Someone who's holy and majestic and worthy and glorious. But Jesus, like the first time, Peter's confession, I am a sinful man. Jesus says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Now he's telling Peter, who's come running to his Lord, who knows of the grace of Christ, he says, come eat a meal with me. These are gifts I give you, the fish, the bread. They're gifts that you're going to be sharing with the rest of the world because you're catchers of men. You're fishers of people. 
and you're going to feed the world upon my works and my words. And so by taking the bread and the fish and giving it to his disciples, much like the Lord's Supper, yeah, he performs this act of a Jewish host blessing, pronouncing a blessing at a meal. So verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what we see here this morning is instead of a God who is rebuking, this is a God who is feeding. Instead of pointing out all they had done, done wrong, oh foolish disciples, oh stupid ones, none of that. It's pure gift, it's pure grace, it's pure fellowship. It's the God who promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a God who all along throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is seeking to dwell with his people and his people to dwell with him, to be with him. Um, in one of Ernest Hemingway's short stories, he wrote of this man named Paco who was wandering the streets of Madrid in Spain and um, he wanted to get himself killed for his past mistakes. So he takes to bullfighting looking to die as a form of suicide, essentially. And so now this is the last thing Paco's father ever wanted for his beloved son. So he puts an ad out in the, in the paper to try to get his son back. And the advertisement read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Paco's a common name in Spain. So... When the father went to the Hotel Montana the next day at noon, there were 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers and waiting for the forgiveness they never thought was possible. I don't know the worst of what you have done, but I know the worst of what I have done. Peter knew the worst of what he had done. God, I will never deny you. Jesus, I will never betray you. And what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. On top of many other stupid things that Peter did. Many stupid things that I did. If God can give grace and hope to Peter, and if God can meet a sinner like me, then surely God's grace is sufficient. His forgiveness is true enough for any number of you. Will you come and have breakfast with Jesus? Will you come and eat a meal with him? He delights in you. Let's pray.